Good morning. Thank you, Sean and uh, music team for so thoughtfully uh, leading us in our musical worship. Really appreciate that this morning. And it's good to be back here with you this week in our world where so many things are uncertain and shifting and disappointing, and even in our personal lives when there are changes and uh, sicknesses and all these things. It's good to have a rhythm of life where we continually, repeatedly come back together around the Lord Jesus Christ and around his word and in fellowship with each other. And so we have this constant in our lives, this anchor point. And it is the fellowship of believers and it is the word of God. And so we come repeatedly to the word to look for nourishment and guidance and solutions and to be challenged, to be convicted, to be rebuked, and as a source of change and of hope. God's word gives us hope, and so we are doing that together here. And Faith and I are glad to be back with you today, and uh, we've enjoyed these weeks here with you, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be, uh, we won't be here over the weeks in February, but we will be, Lord willing, back in March, and so we're looking forward to that as well. And we are looking together at the book of Titus and um, the theme of learning and living. So if you haven't already found the book of Titus, go ahead and please turn there today. Where we live, out in Johnston, uh, our house is um, shaped so that right above the front steps of our house, the roof line comes together in kind of a U-shape. So when it snows, like it has recently, and then it melts, the water runs down, and it runs into the gutters around that, but, but there's not enough gutter space to handle all the water that converges in that U-shaped area right above our front steps. And so, of course, it spills over and drips down and sometimes pours down onto those, uh, that porch, concrete porch, and then, of course, it refreezes. So then you've got a little mini, miniature skating rink on the front porch. And the process of freezing and thawing and refreezing and thawing, of course, has an effect on concrete. And then also there's a row of bricks across the, the top there um, of, the, of the steps on the corner of the, the concrete porch. And, and then also when people walk up the steps, that's where they put their their foot when they reach the top, right on that row of bricks that's across the top. So you can imagine what happens over a process of time with the freezing and thawing and refreezing and what that does, and then people's weight being put on those bricks. And so over time, the mortar loosens, and this past year, it was at the point where the bricks were starting to The mortar was crumbling, and the bricks were starting to get really loose. And every time somebody came to our house, I said, i got to fix those bricks. i got to fix those bricks. Somebody's going to step on, it's going to give way, and they'll have an accident, and it won't be good. So uh, my neighbor, who's very helpful, very friendly, one time said, hey, I'll help you do it. And then I I thought about that. I thought about trying to hire somebody to do it. And uh, then I just, you know how it is, right? It's like, I will look this up. And I'll do a search, and I'll figure out how to fix this. And so, so I did. And sometimes that's disastrous. Sometimes it actually works. And so I'm not a great handyman. I don't know much about construction. But I was able to figure out 
hopefully what I needed to do to be able to repair uh, the, those loose bricks. So I had to, uh, actually I had to, to get a, an air hammer with a chisel and, and break that old mortar loose and then just really chip away at it and get all that old mortar out of the way, sweep it clean, wipe it off, and then it was all ready for the new mortar and to put those bricks in place. And it actually turned out okay. I'm watching it now to see how everything looks, you know, with the water coming down and all that. But I was able to at least, at least make an attempt and I think maybe somewhat successfully repair those loose bricks. And, and the point of that little story is that sometimes you have to prepare before you build. Sometimes you have to clean up and remove some rubble before you can put something new in its place or repair that, that situation, right? So sometimes we have to prepare so that we can build. And that's, that's a lot of what we're talking about in our text here today in the book of Titus. There's a process of getting ready so that we can take the steps of growth that God wants us to have. And last week, we looked at the verses here in Titus 1, where Paul told Titus to enlist messengers who would deliver life-changing truth. And that was a necessary step, so that Titus would not be the only one, and that he would have others involved in that important role. There is another step in this process of learning and living, and that is identifying hindrances and removing them so that growth can take place. So I'm calling today's message in our study of this text, Getting Ready to Learn and Live. And in, the case, in this case here in the, the city of Crete, on the island of Crete, there in the Mediterranean Sea, the hindrances were people. And these were people who possessed a degree of knowledge about God. But their lives were not transformed by that knowledge. In fact, their lives contradicted scriptural truth. And their example and their influence actually had a corrupting effect in the church. So Paul is telling Titus to identify and deal with those hindrances in the form of people, as well as their beliefs and their teaching and their conduct that contradicted the gospel. And, and the transformational truths that they supposedly knew. So let me read our text for us, starting in verse 10. Titus chapter 1, starting with verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure." But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified 
for every good work. Our natural tendency is to look around and, and wonder, is there anyone like that in our church? <laughs> and we probably should do that and be on guard. But I think we should also look inward and consider, is there anything in my life that is hindering the effectiveness of God's life-changing work in me and possibly something in my life that is hindering God's life-changing work in other people, people around me? So this is how we can get ready to learn and live. And we will start by identifying the potential hindrances that we see in this passage to learning and living. And there were several kinds of problems that Paul was aware of and that he identified and that Titus faced in Crete. And, and again, there are sometimes uh, corresponding problems in our day, in our culture, in our churches in our own personal lives and families. And so we should be willing to identify these as well. And the first one is an authority problem, a problem with authority. And you see this in verse 10 where he says, there are many insubordinate. So people who refuse to subordinate themselves to authority. Now this was a general characteristic, and Paul was probably referring to the fact that they uh, didn't really want to listen to anybody telling them what to do. And in this case, there were spiritual authorities in place who were teaching the word, who were preaching the gospel. And these people must have been rejecting that and wanting to think what they want and do whatever they wanted to without, having, without being under authority. Uh, so it's the authority of, of the scriptures and ultimately the authority of God. But it could include other authorities as well. In fact, glance over at chapter 3 here in Titus and the first verse where he says, chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. So here it seems that Paul is talking about governing authorities, and the people in Crete were notorious for many unsavory qualities, and among those was resistance against anyone telling them what to do. And we could probably all think of examples in our culture of people with the same kind of attitude. And honestly, sometimes Christians develop that kind of attitude. Well, I'm my own person and nobody's going to tell me what to do. God places authorities in our lives. He has an arrangement, a system of authority in our homes, in our families, in government, in places like school and where we work and in the church. And our attitude toward them is a reflection of our attitude toward God. And chafing against authority is a sign of self-will. And people who are stubbornly self-willed are not in a condition, don't have a heart condition in which to really grow spiritually. If, if you don't like being told what to do, it's just kind of a general characteristic or personality trait, then you may have a problem with obeying God. Now, there's another possible hindrance to our growth that uh, we should be watching out for, and that is an influence problem. And we see this also in, um, in verse 10. He says, they are idle talkers and deceivers. 
especially those of the circumcision. So idle talkers means that they, they had a lot to say, they talked a lot, whether that's in conversation or maybe in the individual home settings that he mentions here, people's households, and so they're very verbose, have a lot to say, but, but it's fluff, it's empty. It's like intellectual candy, it's appealing, but, but it's not nourishing, it's not real truth. In fact, he, he calls them deceivers. So what they are saying is actually not true, and it is leading people astray. And he identifies them as those of the circumcision. So this tells us that these, were, these people were Jewish. So they were among the, the Jews had, who had been scattered out of the land of Israel. So now these are Jews on the island of Crete, and these were Jews who had become attached to believers in Jesus Christ. And it seems they, they, it's likely they were actually converts. They had actually professed faith in Jesus. But they have wrong ideas, and these ideas are, are carrying over into, into their influence on the people around them. In fact, it seems that they, they said that as Christians, people still needed to follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws, mentioning here the circumcision and some other things that we'll look at later. And they were leading people astray. People were paying attention to them, leading them astray. As he says in verse 11, they were teaching things that they ought not to teach. And they were subverting households. They were, they were disrupting people's families. And they were dividing people from the, the corporate assembly, from the overall fellowship of the church. So they were disruptive and they were divisive. And so it was a problem, wasn't it? There, there was an influence problem. And people were paying attention to them. They were being deceived by them. And it is amazing, even in, in our day, how, how vulnerable people are to, to false ideas and even to like financial scams, tricks that uh, people use to prey on the gullible and the vulnerable. And you read news, you hear stories of people who click on that link or they answer that phone call, or they respond to that email. And it says, yeah, all we need is your, your name, your address, your social security number, your mother's maiden name, and the code to your garage. It's all we need, and then we can take care of this, right? Oh, okay, <laughs> sure, I'll give that to you. And all of a sudden, they have access to information about you that can be used to steal identity or access accounts or whatever. And people fall for it, right? Sometimes we shake our heads and think, what in the world? But people do. But in, in the Christian realm, I think the same thing happens. And if it has something Christian in the, the name or the title or the description or there's some Bible verses tagged onto it or some little phrase that comes from the Bible, maybe they say a prayer, it's very Christian-sounding, it's Christian-ish, and, and people latch on to those influences and can be easily led astray. There's a vulnerability there. We are trusting of anything that presents itself as Christian. When I say we, I'm speaking generally. There's a vulnerability there. And so we have to be on guard and be aware of this, this influence problem like, like they experienced there in Crete. And then there's another issue here, and that was uh, a motivation problem. So we, we see Paul identifies what was motivating them in verse 11. They subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. So that was their motivation. 
They used people's spiritual interest to gain trust and then to get them to open their money bags. And so they do a lot of talking. They don't really say much. It has a a religious-sounding message. It's appealing. It's attractive. And people are willing to open their wallets and, and give financially. And, and again, we're very thankful for legitimate ministries, right? But we have to be careful when people are selling something. And Paul's identifying that here, a motivation problem. And then there was a cultural problem. So it's broader than just the church. So we see this in verses 12 and 13, uh, where he says, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans, so residents of the island of Crete, are always liars. Now, I don't want to get on a sidetrack here, but there's a little bit of a puzzle that goes with that, because if, if a Cretan says Cretans are always liars, you wonder if what? He's telling the truth, right? Okay, so, so without going down that, down that rabbit hole, um, this is what this, this uh, philosopher, and they even called him a prophet, which Paul identifies him as here, um, because of his influence and, and their high esteem of him. But, but this is what he said. His name is Epimenides. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul comments, he's right. <laughs> this is true. So, so Paul confirms it. It's not just a Cretan saying this. Um, Paul, Paul actually can confirm that this is true. And, and here he's, he's categorizing. He's describing these people. Somebody has actually made this into a little rhyme. Liars ever, men of Crete, nasty brutes that live to eat. <laughs> and again, you could say that of maybe some, some categories or people in our day. One, one source says the Cretans considered piracy there on the, on the sea or highway robbery, honorable endeavors. So that was their culture. That's what was not only accepted but, but valued in their day. And Paul's identifying that because he wants the people to be aware that, that there are possible influences from the culture around them. And that there were people who, rather than being transformed by the truth, were actually conforming to the culture. And I would say in our culture, some considered a point of pride to lie, to deceive people, to cheat people, to get ahead, to indulge sinful passions, and to do whatever you want. And we know as Christians, right, there should be a clear distinction between ourselves and the culture around us. In fact, uh, just turn over a little bit to Ephesians chapter 5 for a minute. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul highlights this contrast in Ephesians 5, and he says, starting in verse 1, Ephesians 5, 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So your walk is your conduct, right? So what should shape your conduct? Love. Not selfishness, not indulging your, your passions and your appetites at the expense of others, but, but sacrificing and giving of yourself for the good of others. Then he goes on to say, verse 3, but fornication... All uncleanness, covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. He says there should be a difference. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting. So that's the the dirty jokes, which are not fitting, not appropriate. They don't go with your faith. 
but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Sounds like what Paul said to Titus. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then he continues on. So we we see a similar message there from Paul, don't we? That there should be this difference. And I don't know that that this is what the, the Cretans were hearing, but not only can there be a legalistic false teaching that you have to keep uh, fulfill requirements of the Old Testament ceremonial law to have favor with God, but there can also be a libertine kind of teaching, right? Do whatever you want to. doesn't matter. And Paul is certainly, I think, emphasizing the balance here, that neither one should shape how we live. And so these uh, back in, in Titus here, we see that even on that, that, little, that little island there in the Mediterranean Sea, they face these cultural issues. Whether it's cheating at school, pilfering from the job, having affairs, those are all fine in in our world to many people, but Christians are different. And then we also see, as we go even more into the heart of this, a moral problem in verse 12. A moral problem. And uh, he identifies these specific kinds of sins where he Scribes them as liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, uh, echoing the words of Epimenides there. So, so they, they tricked people for their own gain. They um, indulged appetites instead of engaging in legitimate work. So they swindled people. They were freeloaders. In other words, the, the moral standard was very low, wasn't it? It was very low. And an application I want to make with this is that we not only have to be careful about being influenced by those moral forces, but also as Christians, we should be careful about comparing ourselves and saying, well, I'm not that bad. Uh, Thankfully, I'm not that kind of a person. And think that we're pretty good in comparison to them. And then being content with the status quo being content with a low-grade level of lust, Uh, maybe pride that surfaces in anger in my home but not out when I'm in public. And so so we have to be careful about comparing ourselves and saying, well, the, the world's really bad, I'm not that bad, and be brutally honest and humble enough to identify and acknowledge issues in our hearts and be able to say, you know what, there is lust in my heart. I'm aware of it. And I'm honest about it. There is greed. I do want to get ahead. I do want more. And sometimes I'm willing to push people out of the way to get it. There is selfishness in my heart that causes conflict with other people, pushes people away. And be honest about those issues of our hearts. And so so we can be cautious about what's around us, but also be conscious of what is in us. Well, at the center of all of this, and I think what is probably the root of the problems that Paul's identifying here is a doctrinal problem, a doctrinal problem. We see this in in verses 13 and 14. 
He says in verse 13, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. This is one reason that I think it's either these were Jewish converts to Christianity or at least Paul was holding out hope that they could become true believers. So he says rebuke them with the goal and the purpose that they will actually adopt and embrace the faith and that their, their doctrine, the truth that they hold to, would be sound, it would be healthy, not corrupt. Verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables, and now here's some of the content of this false teaching, Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. These Jewish fables were made-up ideas, is the best way to say it. We think of a fable, a myth, a story, it's fiction. So these were made-up ideas, generally speaking. But then he identifies them specifically here. These are made-up ideas that represent man's thoughts as God's truth. They are commandments of men who turn from the truth. So these false teachers were telling people how they should live according to a man-made system of regulations and prohibitions that either added to what God said or subtracted to it from what God said. And this is getting to the core problem. It was an adulteration of the gospel. So we're going to take a few minutes and understand what, what this situation was. I'm going to ask you to go to Matthew chapter 15, please. Matthew chapter 15, because there's a situation where Jesus actually talked about this issue of commandments of men, and I think Paul was linking to that. Paul was aware of Jesus' teaching on this and the seriousness of the problem. See, the the Pharisees in Jesus' day, those religious leaders, had had books of men's interpretations of God's law. So we know God's commandments, right? Ten Commandments and the book of uh, books of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that contain all of the moral laws as well as the ceremonial uh, routines, rituals that God laid out for them. But then, then the Jews wrote books and they developed their own system of interpretation and application and codes of conduct and they elevated those codes of conduct to, to become the standard of behavior. And, and the rabbis were the supposed experts in these rules and regulations, and they became the authorities who judged if a person was worthy to be in God's favor and to be in fellowship with God's people. They became the referees, these rabbis, the ones who, who determined and judged, all right, you are in bounds or you are out of bounds. And these man-made requirements became the norm, and they replaced God's commands. And Jesus excoriated the Pharisees for this. Look at what happens here in, in Matthew 15, verse 1. Scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress Now look at what they say. Not the commandment of God, but what? The tradition of the elders. And they were talking about these codes of conduct that have been written as a fence around the law so that they would make sure they didn't break the laws. For they do not wash their hands when they ate bread. So so there were were laws of ceremonial cleanness. And so so the, 
Uh, all of the, the elders in Israel had developed this very complicated system for exactly how, step one, step two, step three, and so on, you had to wash your hands before you ate to make sure that you were ceremonial clean. And that ritual became, in their eyes, in their minds, the law. So they're, they're saying, hey, your disciples aren't following the ritual. They're not keeping the code. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Now, Jesus identifies the real issue here, right? What God has actually said, what he really requires, because of your tradition, your man-made system. For God commanded, saying, now he's giving an example of another way that they do this, honor your father and your mother. So we know that's one of the Ten commandments, right? And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, well, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profits you might have received from me is a gift to God. In other words, if they, their parents were in need and, and the child had something to give them, they could say, oh, well, this is set apart to God. I don't have to give it to my parents. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect. In other words, you have effectively nullified the commandment of God by your tradition hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Wow. I'm not sure if there's any time when Jesus used stronger words or was more intense in his confrontation and rebuke than there. And he is accentuating there and highlighting the importance of God's commands and not doing anything that adds to or takes away from them or placing expectations on other people. And say, you know what, the only way for you to be in favor with God, in God's favor, and to be in fellowship with others is by keeping this code of conduct. Uh, Imagine with me, I've kind of referred to this already, but imagine with me a basketball court, and let's say it's a college basketball game, and uh, referees show up before the teams arrive, And the boundary line around the court is a black line, the actual regulation size court boundaries. And the referees walk in, and they have some uh, rolls of of red duct tape. And they measure five feet inside that black boundary line, and they put tape down and make their own boundary line five feet inside the black one. And the teams show up, and they say, what's that? And they say, that's the boundary. And they say, wait a minute, no, the boundary's out there. It's the black line. Well, we, we have another line because we want to make sure that you don't cross that black line. So for this game, the red line's out of bounds. And the game starts, and the players naturally, you know, instinctively use the space that they're used to, and they step over the red line. The refs start blowing the whistles, and they call them out of bounds, right? The ball changes teams, changes hands. That's really what these Pharisees were doing, right? They were saying, wait a minute, the the red line is where you must play the game. That's where you live your life, inside those red lines. And, And Jesus says, no, what God gave you is the black lines. Those are the standards. Those are the boundaries. Those are the requirements. And there's a serious problem because in the case of the basketball game, the referees are usurping authority that isn't theirs, aren't they? It's not their right to change the rules. And they've placed themselves in authority, and they place unnecessary requirements, and they're handing out undeserved penalties 
And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And and then look at what Jesus says in in verse 10. He called the multitude to himself and he said, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. And he clarifies what he means when the disciples ask him down in verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 17. Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart? They defile a man. They make you impure. They affect your ability to be in God's favor and to be in fellowship with others. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So so back to Titus chapter 1 where Paul says that these false teachers and corrupting influences are, are teaching Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth, this is what he's talking about. So they were placing requirements or saying that there were requirements on these Christians that God did not place on them. Now let me talk about this idea of commandments of men so that we can, I think, understand them just a, a degree or two further here and more precisely. I think based on what we see in Scripture, the commandments of men is referring to regulations and requirements that are more specific than Scripture. And as in the case of of Jesus with the Pharisees, it had to do with hand washing. Here in in the book of Titus, it might have to do with something like hand washing because in verse 15, he talks about being pure or being defiled. So it may have to do with something the the Jewish people were saying that the Christians had to do to be ceremonially clean, to be in God's favor, to be in fellowship with others. And then these requirements are stated as from God rather than an interpretation or an application or this is just my opinion. So the person giving it claims that it is as authoritative as Scripture. And if you don't do this, if you don't follow this regulation, then you are disobeying God. And they're dogmatic about it. Make it a matter of right and wrong. And then, a commandment of man, as I think it's being used here, is used to judge people. And some use it to judge themselves, and so they develop a conscience that if I don't fulfill these expectations, if I don't follow these regulations, then I'm guilty. I'm out of God's favor. Others, Some people use it to judge others and determine whether they are worthy to worship God and fellowship with others. Make themselves the referees over other people's conduct. And in doing so, They actually disobey God's commands to love, to fellowship, to worship, to welcome, while following man's. So so in verse 15, just to to glance here again at, at our text in Titus, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. What what Paul is saying here is is really what Jesus said. If you are pure, if you are truly pure, that is, by the forgiveness of God and the washing of Jesus' blood, 
then something that you eat, whether you wash your hands or not, is not going to defile you. It isn't going to move you out of favor with God. It's not going to make you impure. Or not washing your hands, so eating the wrong thing, or not washing your hands correctly according to their ceremony of the Judaizers was not going to defile you. If you're cleansed by Christ, if you've been washed in the blood, we would say. But on the other hand, if you are already impure, if your heart is not pure, if it is already defiled by sin and, and by guilt, and he, did, he says if you're unbelieving, so if you're not a believer in Christ, you haven't trusted in Christ, then you're already defiled internally. And everything you do is impure, right? You can't do anything right that gets God's favor or earns you fellowship with him. So what's at stake here is fundamental gospel truth. What makes a person pure? Christ does, not following regulations and prohibitions, and especially not ones that are man-made. We do not perform external acts of goodness so we can receive God's favor or stay in God's favor. We receive God's free favor, which is called what? What is God's free favor called? Tell me out loud. Grace, exactly. We receive God's free favor, which motivates us to do what is pure and right. Let me just say that again, and then I'm going to show you the basis for that in our, in our book here. We do not perform external acts of goodness so we can receive God's favor or stay in God's favor. We receive God's free favor, that is his grace, through Christ, which motivates us to do what is pure and right. Grace motivates us to do what is pure and right. And that's what we see in chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11, the heart of this book, for the grace of God, the free favor of God, that brings salvation. So that's how we're saved. That's how we're made right with God. That's how we're in his favor, has appeared to all men. But that grace does teach us that we should live in a certain way, right? That we should have certain prohibitions in our lives and, and then pursues certain attitudes and actions in our lives, as he goes on to describe there. So that is the heart of gospel truth. That is, that is fundamental gospel truth. And Paul identified that as a serious issue there in that church and something for us to think about as well. There was also a consistency problem there in, among the Christians in Crete. You see that in verse 16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. So they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They claim the name but they don't live the life. And that is the complete opposite of what this letter is emphasizing about not only knowing the truth, but living by the truth. And we've talked about minding the gap and the gap between what they professed to know and the way they lived was huge, wasn't it? It was absolutely contradictory. And they needed to mind the gap. And all of this adds up to a very serious problem. And again, Paul uses very strong language here, and I guess I would say he's reflecting the, the intensity that Christ conveyed there in Matthew 15. 
being abominable. An abomination is something God hates. An abomination is the same kind of language used in the Old Testament of homosexuality, things like homosexuality and bestiality. Wow. (laughs) That's strong language, isn't it? Abominable. Disobedient. So, So God hates hypocrisy. We should too. They became disobedient because they were obeying man-made rules, but they were breaking God's laws. They were disobedient to God and disqualified for every good work. They were incapable of being and doing what God really wanted. Now, as I said when we started uh, this, it's natural for us to look around. And again, we, we should be on guard. But we should also be willing to look within So here are a couple of questions to help us think this way. Are you being influenced by any of these problems? Whether it's from the culture around you, people in your life, individuals that you've become close to, maybe through media, social media, movies, shows, Is your heart being shaped and influenced by any of these problems? And then is it possible that you might even be the source of any of these problems? Are you hindering someone else's growth? And I want to circle back just for a minute to to that idea of, of the commandments of men. Because, and I don't... I haven't been here long enough, and I don't know you well enough, but I've been in church life for a long time, and I've been in very conservative type of churches, and I know that, that we can sometimes develop a structure and a framework of, of uh, how we believe we should live, what we should believe and how we think we should live. And it starts with Scripture, but sometimes we can construct a, a system, and we might even say kind of a, a code of, of belief and a code of conduct that's a few layers, a few levels above or outside of Scripture. And sometimes that's helpful because it helps us know how to apply truth to our lives. It helps us know how to interpret Scripture. But sometimes what can happen is that whether it's a personal interpretation or application or opinion or one that becomes kind of an unspoken code among a group of people, that can become elevated, and all of a sudden we can find ourselves viewing each other through that framework and thinking, oh, that person doesn't quite align with the the terminology that we're using or the, the way that we're handling, whether it's family life or education or lifestyle choices. And, and we, don't, we don't align, and so we can actually start to think in terms of the referee and maybe even blowing the whistle, whether we do it actually to that person or not, maybe it's in our own minds, and we say, you know, I'm not sure that person really is in the place of God's favor. I'm not sure that person really is in a situation where they should be in full fellowship with God's people because things are just a little bit different than the way we see it or the way that we, we do it. And it can extend beyond and even become a point where people who are newer, who are coming into 
the group, right, into the gathering, um, might, there might not be that full welcome. And I'm, I'm not going to give an exact, um, exact detailed example here, but, but one that comes to my mind is where I was pastoring, and um, there was a certain kind of an unspoken way of doing things in, in that church that I would say um, that there were good intentions, but it was, it was kind of one of those second or third level areas where people had developed their own ideas about this is how it should be done. And a visitor, an individual, drove into the parking lot and observed this scenario going on and actually left. And we found out later they left because they saw what was happening and realized, you know what, I don't think I fit in. I don't think I belong. I don't think I would be welcome there. All right. So, and again, I know I'm being, being kind of vague here, but I don't want to draw attention to the, the issue itself. But that was scary. <laughs> we, when we found out about that, when we heard about that, it was like, wow. And obviously as a church, we don't want to, to lower biblical you know, truths or, or guidelines or standards by any means. But boy, do we have to be careful that we don't send a wrong message, that you have to match, you have to meet kind of the the group code in this area for you to be accepted, for you to be welcomed, for you to be embraced, for you to be in fellowship. And again, I don't don't know you and I'm not hitting on anything specific that that I have any awareness of. But as we think about this issue of learning and living and being a church, that is this kind of culture. It's just something to consider, something to be prayerful about, something to be sensitive to. And, and it is possible to follow man-made codes and, and actually break God's commands by pushing people away rather than loving and welcoming and, and making them disciples of Jesus, right? And that's why we're here, isn't it? To make disciples of Christ, Well, I am thankful that we are not chained to these problems. Because of God's grace through Christ in the gospel, we can move in a better direction. So let's just for a few minutes here talk about how to do that. How do we move toward truth-based living? Well, the first way is to stand up to legalism. I'm using that term to refer to requirements, man-made requirements to earn God's favor and to merit fellowship with his people. And he says in verse 13, do what? Rebuke them sharply. And again, there he's following the pattern of Jesus, isn't he? So so that doesn't mean to be mean about it, but you've got to point out the fact that what they're doing does not have a basis or authority from God's word. He says in verse 11, their mouths must be stopped. We have to muzzle them, is the idea here, and close them down. And, and point out what's wrong, but also point them in the right direction, as he says in verse 13, that they may be sound in the faith. That's the idea. To help them go in the right direction. So, so stand up to it, but with a redemptive purpose in mind, so that they will move toward the truth and adopt it and build their lives on it. And then we do need to clear away like the rubble on the steps, those unhealthy ideas and influences and systems 
and traditions. So he says at the beginning of verse 14, not giving heed to these things. So stop allowing them to influence our thinking. And and if there are people involved, stop allowing them or the influences. Stop allowing those influences to shape how you live individually as well as corporately. And then be ready to embrace what God says and live as God directs. As he ends verse 14, they have turned from the truth. There's the positive side. That's what we're moving toward. The truth. And then the end of verse 16. Every good work. And over and over in this little letter, Paul uses phrases like that. Good works. Every good work. So it's it's truth-based living. It's embracing what God says, but then also living as God directs. And when we get into chapters 2 and 3 in the future, that's what he's talking about. How to do that. How to develop truth-based living in these practice, practical areas of life. I started with a building repair analogy. I want to finish with a different one. Any gardeners here? Anybody plant a garden? Okay. Flowers or vegetables? All right. I've done that a few times. Finally gave up between the bugs and the deer and critters and everything else. But um, it's fun, and we enjoy the, the fruits of that, right? And a few times I've, I've put in a garden where there was nothing before. So it was lawn. So there's a layer of sod and then packed dirt under there. So I didn't have a backhoe or any kind of machinery. So I just got the shovel, pushed it in, stomped on it, cranked it, leveraged, you know, a big clod out, and then whatever space is going to be the garden, do that over and over and over, and that's just work, isn't it? And then rented a tiller and tilled up that soil, broke up the clods and softened it up, and then walked through, picked out rocks and roots and raked it out nice and ready, maybe amended the soil with some nutrients and fertilizer and that kind of thing. And then a garden is ready to plant, And the key is preparation, isn't it? The key is preparation. Preparation is important to growing vegetables, and it's also important to growing in your Christian life, being ready. So what needs to happen in the soil of your heart, the soil of your life? Does anything need to be broken up? Anything need to be smoothed out? Anything need to be picked out and removed? Anything need to be amended so that your heart is prepared for the the word of God take root and for you to grow in your Christian life, in trusting in gospel truth and living by it. Uh, there's a beautiful old song that, that I enjoy really every stanza. It starts out like this, and I would like to actually encourage us to make this our prayer today. And I think the first couple of lines have to do with learning. Now, we, we have the mind of Christ, the Bible tells us. We have We have a a God-given understanding of spiritual truth. We have the mind of Christ. So so the prayer is, may may the mind of Christ, our understanding of spiritual truth, live in me. So may it be active, right? Not just in a book somewhere or a journal or in, in the recesses of memorization in my brain, but may it be active, alive in my life. So I would say there's the learning side. Then the second two lines reflect the living side. By his love and power. So, so Christ, it's about Christ and his love 
and his power, not just, not just following a checklist or you know, having a new start, turning over a new leaf, but the power of Christ by his spirit controlling all I do and say, learning and living. So let's bow together. And I encourage you to maybe even just look at those words and let's make those our prayer. Heavenly Father, may we truly desire this. Help us to be honest and humble, to recognize and confess influences in our own hearts and lives and the world around us that may be shaping us. Help us to repent and change areas where we may be hurting and hindering somebody else's understanding of the gospel, living out the gospel. Help us to clear away those hindrances by your power, with your forgiveness, with your grace. And then help us, I pray, to have hearts that are ready cultivated, open, humble before you so that we can grow and change to be conformed to Christ to the extent that we are able in this life for your glory. May your mind live in us from day to day by your love and your power controlling all we do and say. In Christ's name, amen.